Everybody, thank you, Nina Simone. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. You're a national movement building show. So I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, our co-host and producer, Lynn Bowen, and Karina Elias from the Feminist Magazine. See, I'm a big sports fan, and I always listen to all the sports shows, and they have a thing called Crosstalk, where at the last 40, 15 minutes of one show and then the first 15 minutes of the other. Mm. They, they, all the hosts stay in and just talk over each other, don't listen to each other. It's great radio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's, it's all men usually, <laughs> men just not listening. But, you know, they, they like that. It's, it's real good. So I've always wanted uh, Lynn and Karina to come in with us right after Feminist Magazine. And since the email didn't work, we planned this on 30 seconds, which is what's going to make it really good. Uh-huh. All right. So. Spontaneous. Spontaneous. In like two crossover episodes. Feminist sports. I get yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> feminist sports. Right. Crossover, cross dressing, cross whatever. Yeah. So we got this. So this is an old friend of mine who called. Thank you. To, okay. So the thing is, is that I do listen to Feminist Magazine on the way in. I really like it. And I know what, what it's like to put a show together. So. I'm more interested in talking to both of you as hosts and organizers. Uh, Let's just start with the history. When did the show start? Wow. The show started back in the 70s, and it's been like various incarnations over time. And the name has been the same all the years. I mean, so, which is really interesting because sort of back in the 90s, there was some feedback of, well, maybe it's not current enough. Change it to something else. Feminist is not a fashionable word. But hey, it's back in fashion. (laughs) We just stuck with it, right? And um, we've always operated as a loose collective. It's always been like our goal to be intersectional and diverse and bring in all different kinds of feminist voices, but always obviously, you know, progressive that fits the KPFK mission. And what we love is we bring in new folks and we mentor and we train and we skill share and so basically like I'm the senior producer but we have various co-hosts we also have different contributors so that we get like all the stories from like different parts of the community and Karina produced today. I am. I'm a junior producer yeah. and, and co-host. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I've been with yeah. KPFK for three and a half years actually. So um, yeah, yeah just to to back up what Lynn is saying, it's really all about getting all feminist voices involved. Um, 
Yeah. So basically, it's not just the content or the guests. It's also how we put the show together. We always say in a feminist kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the radio, so you can't see me making (laughs) quote, air air quotes. But yeah, we put the show together in a feminist kind of way. We have each other's backs. Mm -hmm. Like one of us will do a pre-record but doesn't have time to edit, put out a message. Others will step in and edit for them. You know, it's kind of that whole team effort. It's a lot of teamwork. Yeah. How long have you been the host? Uh, one um, of the hosts, I guess. Yeah, one of the hosts. I started in 2007. Um, I was, so what is it, 11 years? Yeah. 11 years. I was mentored by Ariana Manov. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so, I mean, the mentoring thing is really big for us as well. And, yeah, it's, um, I always worked in media and grew up in South Africa where we listened to the radio. <laughs> um, and so radio is like, now we also podcast the show and, you know, we have a lot of, we do a lot of social media. Um, we, we're we, keeping it current. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're keeping we're it current. We're coming with the times. Yes. Mm-hmm. We count on Karina to keep us current. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, and I, I keep, you know, but I think we shouldn't give away, you know, I think senior people are really important. Yes. Oh, place. definitely. You know, oh, there's definitely. this sort of a cult of youth now, like, you know, no. when are we going to get rid of Eric and Lynn, you know, so, <laughs> you know stuff like that. And, and well, that's, this is why I think our collective model works really right, well. Because exactly right. we keep, and also I think cross-generational conversations. Exactly. It's like there's, there's kind of wisdom and freshness to learn from each other Absolutely. in both directions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the worst show you've ever done? Whew. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's many. <laughs> no. Oh, I remember. Well, the one that was like so close to being disaster, but I've never forgotten it, was, um, what was her name, really? Oh, you don't have to name names if you don't want to. Famous Egyptian feminist. I mean, really wonderful. A guest that we had dreamed of having. She was appearing at UC Riverside, and um, the professor who was hosting her at Riverside drove her in to bring her here live because she insisted on doing the show live. Nawal al-Sadawi, that's her name. Yeah. And... I was so excited because I'd read her books and it was, you know, it was fangirling. And they were driving in and there was a fire in the Cahuenga Pass. They couldn't get through. And so they were stuck at um, a gas station on Sunset Boulevard with a cell phone. And this was a few years ago, so cell phones were worse then. And she did the interview from a gas station on Sunset Boulevard, and she was yelling. Anyway, so, yeah. That's good. It was disappointing, but it was, yeah. The show must go on, right? The show must go on. Yeah. What happens when the guest goes on too long? We cut them off. What do you know? <laughs> That's what I was telling Channing. We say, oh, you know, we're wrapping up with so-and-so. It was so great talking to you. And then, bam, it's over. <laughs> on to the next. Yeah, it's, it can be kind of cold sometimes. Yes. <laughs> they understand. Yes. No, we, we, yeah, we've got hand signals right. as well, right? Well, if you're oh, in yeah. studio, it works much better. Yes, right. right. You know, one thing I've decided is to not have college faculty on the show because oh, we'll go on they they think everything is a 50-minute answer, right. you know, and organizers, they, there are some people on the show, yeah. they get in and out of the answer mm-hmm. so good. You ask them a question, they know, they nail it, and they knock it back to you, mm-hmm. and then you knock it back to, it's great radio. Right. So, so those are the ones you invite back more, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And uh, so Channing, what's it been like you on, on starting to go from behind the mic to in front of the mic? Uh, well, I... Th- I 
I'm still an introvert. I'm still shy. <laughs> <laughs> But that's why you do radio, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I. I mean, I love the technical, and you know, I was trained as a photographer at Otis, and you know, I just like doing a lot of editing and backstage stuff. But you know, I realize as an organizer, I have to be upfront um, because you know that's where the main conversation is happening in many ways, right? And so. You know, I can't be behind and complaining. Oh, this person said this. Oh, this person said that. But then you have to ask yourself, well, where's your perspective? Mm. Right. Why aren't mm -hmm. you in front of the mic then, giving your own perspective? Right. 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 Um, and so that's kind of where I am. I feel you know I see it as a duty. Um, and yeah. Yeah, and we think of this as our activism. Mm -hmm. um, all of us do. We really do. We're all activists in other places and parts of the city and involved in other organizing and um, we always organize a feminist magazine contingent at any of the big marches we have our banner we're mm -hmm. out there we have a facebook event page um so yeah we feel like it's not we're not just doing it here behind the mic, right? Yeah, we don't just talk about the events. Oh, we often attend the events that we are talking about right. and show up as, you know, as activists uh, to do the work that we say we're going to do. Right. The last guest you had, just had on was talking, or at least one of them was talking about the art show at the... Uh, Self-help graphics. Self-help graphics mm -hmm. and the issue of genocide against women. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, Peace Over Violence here, and I did a review of a film called Yellow, right? A, mm -hmm. An African film about rape that was just almost unbearable to watch. Wow. And uh, so tell us about that. I mean, about the, the, the constant issue of misogyny and the, the brutality, the endless brutality against women in every form of society. Wow. And, we, and I want you to know that at Voices, we are building that into one of our central themes as well. So, so gender-based violence is often referred to, or uh, gender genocide, as you called it, is often no, referred to did. as femicide, right. uh, which would be right. kill, the killing of women in mass. Right, right. And uh, it's happening, we were just talking about this right. during the show, is that it's happening every single day that Native women go missing and nobody goes looking for them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even the crisis down at the border, right. you know, sending a lot of these women back to their countries is going to lead mm -hmm. to murder. Right. And right now, in fact, um, the U.S. doesn't observe this very much, but around the world, it's the 16 days of action against gender-based violence. So the United Nations declares November 25th every year the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and um, December 10th is Human Rights Day. So there's actually this campaign around the world that the 16 days between November 25th and December 10th are all about days of action to like highlight different issues around, you know, intimate partner violence and violence in the workplace and all these different things. But in other parts of the world, like my friends in South Africa, my friends in France, people are marching and organizing. But here it's the women of color groups who have That's roots right. in That's countries, right? right? right. So Affirm um, right. and Mujeres de Maiz and groups right. like that all have events around these the 16 days. And we were just talking about how in France they were very, very smart. They leveraged off the Me Too movement And they're kind of creating awareness. It's like not just harassment, but worse, where they're talking about every three days a woman in France is killed by 
a current or former husband or boyfriend. Well, the numbers in the U.S. are every day three women are killed. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just not talked about enough, really. They say the uh, most common place for a woman to get murdered is in her own house. You know, or in her own kitchen specifically is what they say. Wow. So, yeah, wow. it's really, really scary yeah. when you think that it's not just, you know, we're sold this myth that it's strangers in the back alley in mm. the darkness when really it's happening in broad daylight in your own home. Right. Well, we've been trying to work on, you know, we, we just begin some of this work, but we've done it for a long time. But we have this thing about stop state violence against women. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now we've been saying right. in the family, including that as part of state violence, you know, in the workplace, in the streets, by the police, in the army, mm-hmm. by the army, right, in right. the third world. Uh, how do we, because I've also been involved in a lot of, quote, domestic violence, helping people that were friends mm-hmm. and family members, but how do you also figure out how to put the burden back on the system as well as the kitchen? And that, and, and that the kitchen is part of the system. Right. So it's a complicated, you know, I'm just asking how yeah. you're thinking about it. Yeah. Well, it, it uh, you know, there's obviously laws that could be put in place on a state level. But also, you know, culturally and socially, things need to change. Uh, we need to start viewing women as people and stop the dehumanization of, of uh, you know, women. Right. And also, I mean, you know, the there's been all this work in um, – prior policy work that's like put together the Violence Against Women Act where there's funding for education and shelters and, and, you know, kind of all different kinds of both prevention and treatment situations. And the current administration has been holding back on the funding or state by state places are canceling that. So push again for that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All of the, the, there's a whole lot of policy and structural potential that we can build on from prior administrations. Of all the things I think about, shelters is one of the things I think about the most about, um, I first learned about the most serious elements of violence against women when I worked at the General Motors factory. Mm. And a lot of the women there were uh, coming in pretty brutalized because they were making very good money Mm-hmm. And their husbands or boyfriends are very threatened by that. Right. And so uh, I found out about Haven House, which was uh, oh yeah, right, which was one of the women who was the leaders in my union, had come out of Haven House. Mm-hmm. So uh, I keep thinking, you know, women get all these. Rest- I was through the whole restraining order process with someone, you know, and how hollow that is when you have no place to go and right. you have no place to really hide. Yes. And you have no place to live, and you have the kids, mm-hmm. and you're taking, you know, so yeah. what can we, we got to do more. Yeah, I mean, and oftentimes a restraining order is not going to stop a, a person That's who's right. set on, on committing violence. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly. You know, it is such a, a huge issue, and it comes from so many different aspects of, of society. You know, there's so many things that need to change, and it's not just, a, you know, uh, misogyny you know it's racism it's classism it's it's all of these different factors right. and so there's not going to be just one thing that's going right. to end this yes. mm-hmm. it's like you have we have to push at the thing from all sides i'm i'm misquoting diane de prima but that's kind of the um the general you know point to look at and i think also um 
we keep having to like open up the thinking in every new generation to remind women that they're not standing alone and that they can like find resources and in community mm-hmm. and you know um and i think that every generation raising our sons mm. and brothers yeah. and young yes. men to be to have a yeah. feminist analysis yeah. and see the world differently and not see their kind of feeling their inadequacies can be like played out in in kind of action against women as less than yeah that exactly. shifting that attitude over multiple generations that's work we got to keep doing yeah, basically yeah definitely i agree it's uh, letting boys feel you know and so that they can not withdraw into anger and rage is letting them feel other emotions and learn how to right. express themselves in a healthy way right mm-hmm. and let yeah. them feel that they'll be in big trouble if they don't yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah. let them know that there's consequences yeah. Yeah. exactly consequences. that's, yeah. a, that's I, a big one that i have a wonderful grandson and he they're all being raised really well. Yeah. The girls to stand up and the boys to just be good boys. And uh, so yeah. that was Lynn Bowen and Karina El- El- Elias. Yes. And we're going to uh, transition now to Aretha Franklin. You can stay for Ooh. a minute. And and then we're going to go to Maisie Chen, who's going to be talking to uh, Jenny Martinez. All right. So just hang around for a minute. I just okay. want to make the segue to this wonderful, amazing Grace album. Which is uh, when Aretha died, you know, they were playing all the different albums. But I went through and figured, so what's my favorite of all time album? And that is Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace, which took place in LA at the, uh, I forget what church, uh, but with Reverend James Cleveland. So there's so many great, great songs on this, but I, I, I am, one of them is God Will Take Care of You, which I'm not playing. But we're going to do Mary, Don't You Weep with the Southern California Choir. That's going to be about eight minutes. And we're going to play the whole thing. And then we're going to thank Aretha Franklin for segueing our feminist magazine. And let's do this more often. Yes. Okay. Let's. Crossover. Crossover. <laughs> right, we got it. Okay. Thanks to you both. Thank, thank you. you.
Wow. Um, I'm so glad to listen to that. You know, uh, I was just, just reading uh, a review by a guy named David Nathan. He's the author of Soulful Divas, uh, which, as it says, contains naturally a lengthy chapter on Ethan Franklin. So he said, and I already knew this before he wrote it, but seriously, he said, Knowing that I've long been one of our most fervent admirers, a colleague once asked me which of Aretha Franklin's I consider my all-time favorite. Not an easy question, considering she's made more than 40, many of which have served as the soundtrack to my life. Right off, I replied that I couldn't name one album, but I knew that Aretha arrives. Her second Atlantic LP came close. Now, if the question had been, which Aretha album do you consider her most vocally powerful or which one most effectively displays the awesome nature of a God-given gift? There would be no contest. Amazing Grace stands head and shoulders above all the glorious classics of the 60s and 70s, all the hit duets and chart toppers of the 80s and 90s. So it's funny because going back, I, I went and sent away for the uh, CD because I wanted to just you know just keep playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it in my car, and what I was struck by was ex I mean her voice of course is magnificent but the she's only 29 in this uh, album and her father is there both Reverend James Cleveland is there and her own father Reverend Franklin is there I urge you to get the the CD and just listen to it and listen to it and listen to it it's to say it's opera is almost condescending because it sounds like gospel has to be compared to opera. It's gospel. It's also opera. It's also just magnificent. And then he ends by saying, interestingly, uh, I wish I could have been there during those two magical nights in January 1972. Now imagine she just died in 2018. That's 36 years ago, I think. Uh, 46 years ago, wow. And wished even more that the film of the event, directed by Academy Award-winning director Sidney Pollack, would finally be made available instead of gathering dust on some vault shelf in Burbank. But until somebody unearths it and allows us all to witness the visual glory of Amazing Grace in its entirety, we have this deluxe, unabridged edition of one of the greatest recordings of the 20th century to enjoy endlessly. Amen. So Aretha it is one of the greatest recordings of the 20th and 21st century. And just thank you for everything you've done for all of us. Uh, amazing grace. Um, and I'm told that the film is finally out. It says here, uh, thanks, Mary Reich from says, Lem's Pasadena Playhouse, Monica Film Center through tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, and says, Mary Reich said, looks like just those two theaters for now. They'll probably re-release it in another week or two. So let's all go see Amazing Grace. Let's listen to it. And, um, you know, one of the great things about being an artist, a writer, is you leave a lasting legacy. So Aretha truly lives on. I mean, not everybody does, but God knows she does, and as they say, and thank you for Amazing Grace, and thank you for Oh Mary, Don't You Weep.
and also listen to, among other things, God will take care of you, but listen to the whole, the whole thing over and over. Sorry, I, I could just spend the next half hour raving on. Jenny Martinez, why don't we take a short break? Yeah. And uh, Jenny, you're going to introduce the conversation with Maisie Chin, and I'll be with you. Why don't we take a break, Ricky? So welcome back to Voices from the Front Lines on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. And now Voices from the Front Lines is on Facebook, and you can check us out and stream live as well. Um, so Maisie, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Great. So, you know, we we have you on because there's a lot going on in the world in general, but there's also a lot going on specifically around education, both nationally and locally around the country. Um, I know just this year, there's been a commission on school safety converged mm -hmm. by the Department of Education and Department of Justice to figure out new recommendations on the safety translation, put more police in schools, according to them, um, and they are going to be releasing their report pretty soon. Um, and there's a lively movement to stop school push-out, to stop the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, so why don't we start with, you know, just yourself, who is Cadre, and what are you, what, what, talk a little bit about the history, and from there, I think I want to talk about what Cadre is doing now, and then to end with, know between the work of the cadre and the strategy center where is this all going well let's see if we can get all that in <laughs> yeah next, uh, <laughs> it's a lot for 30 minutes <laughs> <laughs> but uh but by all means i will uh give it my best shot to contribute uh our best thinking to all of it Great. Uh, so really quickly um cadre is 17 is a 17 year old parent organizing center we're based in South Central LA uh, right now. We've been at 84th and Broadway for the last uh, four years, almost five years. And uh, we really are a place that combines, I think, 
you know, sort of some neighborhood-based organizing, some some what I would consider, uh, you know, general education organizing where people are learning their rights and learning how to uh, advocate, parents are advocating for their children in school. But what is really probably the most exciting and the most groundbreaking is really that uh, we really center our parents and we center um, this notion of, you know, humanizing parents, uh, looking at the way that capitalism and individualism has really colonized what parent advocacy means and what, you know, parent power, how parent power is defined. Heretofore, it's mainly been transactional. It's been uh, sort of individualized. You know, mm-hmm. if you happen to be the squeaky wheel and you learn your ropes, okay, but it does nothing to unfortunately, change any conditions materially for any other children or families behind behind you. So, right. um, you know, we started off knocking on doors across different uh, parts of South Central back in 1999 and met in living rooms every Friday night with parents potlucking and just talking story and eventually arriving at this point of realizing that, uh, you know, despite all the other trainings, despite the system's uh, gateway to sort of parent rights and parent uh, empowerment and engagement that most of those pathways never really truly allow parents to challenge uh, racist discrimination and treatment of their children or of themselves as advocates for their children. Okay, let me hold you. Let me let me hold you there for a moment um, before we get to uh, to into it. And that you've raised a really. (laughs) a good amount of points. Um, so just so folks know, this Wednesday at Strategy and Soul, we'll be doing a book signing in collaboration with Community Coalition and Building Skills Partnership and the UCLA Labor Center. The book name is Lift Us Up, Don't Push Us Out. It's by Mark Warren, and it's Voices from the Front Lines of the Educational Justice Movement, um, of which Maisie has written an essay in. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 other person I want to mention is uh, Jonathan Stith from the Alliance for Educational yeah. Justice. It's also written at SEN. Um, and, you know, this Wednesday is going to be a continuation of the conversation of the whole theme of school to prison pipeline and not pushing parents and students and folks out of the education system and out of society in general. Um, uh, so sorry, I, I interrupted you. So you guys started. That's okay. No, that's okay. You, uh, it's a great. I mean, it's a great way to link in the event because I am, in many ways, talking about uh, and speaking to uh, what the essay is about. Really, just our origin story and how we came to focus on the school prison pipeline, but through parent advocacy. So, um, you know, the long and short of it is, is you know, having a group of. Uh, predominantly black parents um, decide that despite all their training that they had been privy to, you know, that their kids would still get locked in closets for discipline. Uh, They could still be retaliated against for for pointing out uh, unfair, you know, racially discriminatory treatment. Uh, It really put into serious question, you know, what parent power really meant and what, uh, you know, what kind of Parent power is really needed if we're going to have schools that are just and fair and humane and uh, based on people, you know. And so, 
And that was many years ago when we got there. We, we, you know, we had to wander through the forest quite a bit because the world of education and the world even of educational justice, it can be really misleading. And a lot of times we just don't deconstruct uh, how much the education system is predicated on capitalism and individualism, how much of it is predicated on uh, serious competition uh, where people are intentionally left behind in order for anyone to succeed. And so if that is the foundation on which we're trying to fight for racial justice in our schools and then parents themselves, uh, over time, every generation is more and more a generation that has been completely disserved, under, been underserved, disserved, misserved from that same system, then the whole notion of what it takes, what it means to be involved as a parent really has to evolve politically, you know, with with this uh, consciousness. And so that's kind of where Cadre, uh, you know, started off is just trying to find a different uh, way for parents to challenge systemic racism inside schools. And to make a long yeah. story short, you know, we ended up focusing on school discipline because uh, that was where everybody's rights were the most egregiously trampled upon. Hi, Maisie. Eric Mann. How you doing? Hey, Eric. Good. How are you? Good. Um, I know that Kadri came up with a, a report I read that was uh, you were evaluating the Los Angeles Unified School District's commitment to transformative justice, or I, I got to know the name right, but, you know, the alternative to right. uh, restorative, justice. restorative justice. And uh, they didn't do too well in their report card. I, I, I read it carefully, and I thought it was a really excellent report. Why don't you tell us Thank about you. what you thought they promised, what you thought you were getting, and give the listeners some concretes about the gap between the theory and the practice. Right. So when we we actually the, we put out several reports, but our most recent one last uh, from last October was our sort of ten year, you know, report on uh, what was supposed to be implemented uh, starting in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, and essentially it was a policy our first policy victory where we mobilized a lot of support that really pushed the votes you know over the edge and helped us win uh, a departure away from zero tolerance to something called positive behavior support uh, which now has included and it includes restorative justice it includes uh, ending racial disparities in school discipline it includes lots of other uh, technologies, if you will, to sort of provide alternatives to suspension or removal. Uh, and fundamentally, the policy we want also included uh, family and student participation in its implementation. So we worked with attorneys to collect data, um, and we reviewed the data, we analyzed the data, our parents looked at the analysis, and we developed, you know, the, the our report based on sort of Specifically, where was it falling short in particular of ending racial disparities, but most importantly, involving the community in its implementation so that there was true sort of democracy and inclusion in the in the transformation of the school. And so we found, of course, that that was where they were lacking, uh, that suspension numbers were plummeting, um, but that it was really because it's the easiest thing to change is to just call it something else. Oh. You know, uh, and so despite the promising uh, decreases in suspensions, well, which, which we are all happy about, you know, there was also surveys and experience and stories we collected that 
also told us that the folks' experiences inside the schools were still racially discriminatory, were still, um, you know, not humane, uh, and that people were finding workarounds to suspension and just sending kids home uh, unofficially off the books and and also still not doing what they were supposed to do, which is to go and address the root causes of their alienation from the learning process and, and including the families and the students in that. Got it, got it, got it. So just bringing it up to today, where is that work going? Where is that work at today? Because um, I know that you know, there's, as you're saying, that on the face of it, there's been significant improvements. There's been less, you know, less suspensions. Um, there's, you know, the truancy ticketing of students is gone, right? right? Um, but, you know, even us at the Strategy Center, we've heard terrific, you know, horrific stories about just school police and, you know, the treatment right. of students, especially Black and Latino students inside of LUSD. So um, where where is that work today? Um, well, so I think the new frontier, uh, you know, you know, this has always been a long, intentionally a long, protracted fight. It was never about reducing suspensions. I think the world thinks that's what we're after, but by all means, we were after we're after a complete just realignment of how schools function, especially uh, with Black and Brown families, centering them instead of marginalizing them. And so, you know, school discipline uh, controls or sort of safety, quote unquote, all of those, how those all manifest are direct uh, indicators of how people are being treated and regarded and viewed. And so uh, our work was always done alongside and with the Strategy Center. Uh, you all have always been our allies. And while we worked on uh, insume, you know, changing discipline policy, you were also uh, on the frontier of making sure that crim- the direct criminalization through truancy tickets, citations, and arrests. Uh, and surveillance and militarization were always part of the fight. And together, you know, we've all built and energized a a broad movement towards that end. And so I think right now we are definitely focused on uh, on what's called this hardening of schools. I think that's what the the latest term is, where where after uh, school shootings now it's been reframed, where everything that any concessions we won during the Obama administration are about to be reversed and rescinded. Uh, the justifications are going to be made to um, militarize and, poli- and police our schools and uh, move safety towards, you know, a law and order uh, paradigm. And so our task, especially at Cadre, hopefully along with all of our allies, is really to look at where can, in particular, we have to continue to organize those who sort of are on the fence about school safety and who, you know, don't see another way, but know the current way is completely dehumanizing. Um, so our work with parents, we hope to contribute to that, is that where we are a place where black and brown parents in South Lake can actually learn uh the alternatives and the new paradigms and begin to deconstruct sort of how they are often baited into, you know, demonizing one another, demonizing, each, you know, sometimes folks in their own communities and end up supporting uh, a police state in their schools, even even in the name of, you know, under the guise or in the name of 
keeping their kids safe and just breaking all that down and being a, a home for parents to begin to learn that is what we hope to contribute to this next version of the fight. Because now that they got suspensions out of the way, they know how to not, quote unquote, not suspend kids. The real frontier is really just um, overall surveillance, overall sort of safety. Um, met, many of our victories have been blamed for school violence, which right, is completely right. preposterous. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk about the event tomorrow night. Uh, Strategy Center has a bookstore. It's called Strategy and Soul Movement Center. Then within it, <clears throat> we have the Strategy and Soul Bookstore, the Strategy and Soul Film Theater and Art Gallery. And uh, obviously, I'm going back over a list of my uh, endless essays throughout my life. And one of them was called The Role of a Book in the Organizing Process. Mm-hmm. And why the Strategy Center believes in books. We publish books. We write books. We print books. We make films. You know, So we're having a book signing. And normally book signing is perceived to be in certain circles. Well, that's interesting. Let's have an interesting evening. Uh, the book is called <laughs> Left, Right, Left. You know, <laughs> you know, my life is boring. Let's go hear some author talk about a book. But this is called Lift Us Up, Voices of the Front Lines, Educational Justice, is G2 Brown is doing great work All in right, Chicago. G2. Joyce mm-hmm. Parker, who's doing great work in Mississippi. There's a lot of good essays in there. Why did you get involved in the book, and why should people come out, and where do they go, and how do they get there? And Some very specific <laughs> things like that. Um, well, I, you know, tonight it's going to be part of the L.A. leg of this book tour. Um, we've been, the book has been, you know, we, there have been events all over the country featuring uh, a number of the people that you've listed, include and more. Um, and he's going to be centering uh, Cadre's work as well as uh, the work of Building Schools Partnership and UCLA Labor Center. And they're going to uh, highlight how they have utilized their labor, uh, their labor organizing in the worker justice uh, movement with Justice for Janitors uh, and and really added uh, to the mix, you know, as organizing of parents as educational advocates and introducing educational justice as part of worker justice. And so um, in addition, we'll also hear from from Mark Warren, the, the uh, overall author of and, right. and co-leader of this book and curator of this book. And then we certainly will hear from you all from the Strategy Center uh, about just how how we're all uh, fighting for educational justice. What are where are the intersections between uh, the work that we're doing and the broader movements that we are all connected to and inspired by and contributing to? Um, so we'll have a, a brief evening of uh, a couple hours of uh, mingling and socializing, but certainly hearing from us, hearing how this book is also reverberating across the country. And then we'll have some time for Q&A and dialogue and then a book signing. So uh, I believe that folks, uh, I, I'm going to punt it to you to kind of say where strategy and soul is and how to get there. Uh, but I certainly do want to encourage folks to come out and really think about educational justice and, uh, you know, beyond getting more kids to graduate and go to college, which, of course, is important and structurally still things that we need to work on. But I think uh, this book really highlights the centering of the racial justice, you know, of racial justice and the struggle for it uh, as part of educational justice. It grounds the work around education. It links it to the pushing out of families 
via gentrification and displacement. Right. Uh, and certainly is looking at these, you know, really looking at how an educational justice movement is a broader movement than just changing schools. Got it. So that sounds great. Um, I want to go a little bit uh, towards your point when you're saying you, what the, using the book in the organizing process, right? And, you know, the way I always think about it and the way that we are trained is that, you know, when it's like when we came out with Playbook for Progressives, you know, mm-hmm. we aggressively went around the country. And it's interesting. We went to Action Camp this year in Baltimore and we did sell a lot of copies, but then we also got there and realized half of the people had playbook already. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a eye-opening success for us and, you know, heartwarming. Like, oh, you guys have actually read our book and you've actually right. took it into the streets and actually put it into motion. So, you know, I think that's probably the goal of this book today is, right, you know, in the midst of Trump and, you know, the Democrats just, you know, you know, the same party, one party system in the United States, how do we use literature and use ideology to actually win the argument? Um, mm-hmm. And win the argument, you know, abroad, you know, within the government and with some folks that can actually move things. But how do we win the argument with our own folks as well? Right. Um, and, and how do we find the bookstore? And how we can find the bookstore. <laughs> Which is where? So the bookstore, is, so Strategy and Soul is 3546 West Martin Luther King Boulevard on the corner of King and Crenshaw. And the book signing is at 530, um, starting at 6 o'clock sharp. Uh, and that's how you find it. And by the way, we're also just open Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at that same address. We look forward to your visit any time of the day and week. Yeah, it's great. And uh, just last thing is that, you know, we have obviously some of the high school students will be coming and some community residents, some parents. And, you know, it's important to know that two of the most important bookstores in L.A. are Essawan and Strategy and Soul, both in Lamert Park slash South L.A. Slash, slash Crenshaw. And that people from all over the city should start realizing that South L.A. is a very important intellectual center of the city. And you should go and go check the evening out. So, Maisie, thanks. We want to uh, make sure that we get a little bit more Aretha Franklin uh, sure. before we go. But, by uh, all means. Or by all <laughs> means, but you get nobody wants to compete with her. But you no, get the last word. Maisie, you get the last word. We're really well, happy to have I'd, you on Voices. Thank you. And uh, just briefly, I just want to say thank you and all solidarity to uh, the Strategy Center and, of course, the Strategy and Soul Space and what you all are doing with it to uh, really raise up the political voice and minds and ideologies of of real people uh, and to build bottom, bottom up, which is so difficult to do in this country. Uh, and so we just really hope that this event is just, you know, a part of that continuing emerging legacy that you all are building. And we certainly hope that folks will come out and really uh, be open to just thinking much more critically about what it means to fight for uh, a just educational system uh, that truly, truly, uh, really educates all of us. Uh, it's going to take a political turnover and power and, and who gets centered and who who really gets to decide and determine, but more importantly, how we struggle, you know, I think for an educational justice system that is, hu- that is human uh, and it's not going to be easy. And I think the essays in this book uh, are short and sweet and they're written in first person and they're from real life stories about how people have 
done the work. So uh, we really do hope it, it's really digestible and it really does expand the movement. So thank you again for giving us a chance to talk about it tomorrow night. Take care, Maisie, thanks. and thanks Take for care. the important work. Thank you both. All power to the long-distance runners like you. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Take good care. See you tomorrow night. All right. Thanks. Hey, Ricky. Can we do number seven on uh, Aretha Franklin, God Will Take Care of You? It's already there? How'd you do that? That was good, Ricky. All right, so listen, everybody. We're going to sort of say goodbye quietly while Aretha, uh, you know, there, there must be a God. If there's Aretha Franklin, there must be a God. It's just that simple. I love this album with all my heart. And thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to Maisie Chan. Thanks to Channing. Thanks to our friends on, that was really cool, the first of, we think, several crossovers with Feminist Magazine. So think about, you know, just sort of give up your life, sisters and brothers. If you believe in the cause, quit your job. Start at 2 o'clock and listen to Feminist Magazine. 3 o'clock, you can listen to Voices from the Front Lines. 4 o'clock, Jerry Quickly. You can just keep going on and on and on, and then you can listen to Aretha Franklin all day. And you don't need money because God will take care of you. And all seriousness, Aretha, much love to you, and thanks to everybody. All power to the people. We'll see you next Tuesday.